Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. It's good to see you again, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Next month, after more than a year's work, after interviewing over a thousand witnesses, and after reviewing over 125,000 records, the January 6th Special Committee will begin a series of six to eight public hearings on what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, who was behind it, and what steps can be taken to prevent such a wholesale attack on our democracy from happening again. A key question will be, what role did Donald Trump play in the insurrection? He's the one, of course, who invited his supporters to come to Washington on January 6th to protest certification of the results of the 2020 election, urging them to be here. It will be wild. And that's the name of a great eight-part podcast that's been examining the events and the forces that led up to January 6th, offering a valuable insight into what the committee may learn in its public hearings. So today, from podcast to podcast, please join me in welcoming the co-hosts of the podcast, Will Be Wild, veteran public radio journalist Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Maritz. Andrea, Ilya, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome uh, to uh, to some fellow podcasters. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So uh, your great podcast, Trump Inc., I guess you thought when we hit November 3rd or by November 7th when the election was certified that you were finished with uh, Donald Trump, right? Yeah. I mean, we uh, we spent... The, the podcast lasted three years. Andrea and I spent actually four years reporting uh, business of Trump stories. And really our um, MO at that point had been to look for conflicts of interest, ethical minefields, and, and really just trying to understand the incentive structure around the first president, uh, at least in anybody's memory, who was making money from a separate business while presidenting. And that that was really like our preset, right? Um, and it is true. I mean, it took a, a few days for the election to resolve. But once it did resolve, I think we understood that that podcast was going to wind down. What we didn't know huh. was that there was going to be uh, an insurrection, a riot at the Capitol. It happened to occur during uh you know, uh, a Zoom edit. We were already in the time of Corona, of course. So like a Zoom meeting with us and some of our producers and editors trying to put together the last episode. So that was actually happening as the riot was unfolding and people would like sort of check their Twitter. And at a certain point, I think someone was like, okay, let's let's wrap this up. It seems like other stuff is happening in the world. Um, and once it did happen, we got to talking about uh, how this fits in with the reporting that we'd already done. And Andrea and I decided that 
we wanted to take a closer look at this event uh, because as much as it was witnessed by, you know, about a million cameras, uh, we knew that there was a lot to understand that you couldn't necessarily see just from watching the footage. Well, I think what's so striking about your podcast uh, and the approach you've taken is uh, we know we saw, I live in Washington, I watched it, we saw what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, but you're focusing on the forces behind it, really, which I find fascinating. Andrea, do we have any warnings that this might happen? I mean, I think yes. <laughs> and I think that this is sort of the, you know, constant challenge of sort of living in the age we have is imagining the unimaginable. So, I mean, uh, you know, certainly prior to the 2020 election, you know, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about would there be violence around the polls? Uh, would there be some kind of upheaval about a deeply divided uh, country. Uh, there were scenarios run about, you know, what would happen if Donald Trump didn't want to, you know, peacefully turn over power. He was actually questioned about that. So I think that there were certainly ample warning signs. I think um, what we saw was that, you know, after the election uh, went off and was a pretty smooth election and, and really wasn't violent uh, and, you know, delivered some pretty decisive results, ultimately, at the end of the day, people sort of exhaled and thought, okay, that's it. The rest is a formality. Uh, however, among those people uh, was not Donald Trump, who basically, you know, had the attitude, and as we now understand, that it that it was not over until it was over. And I think that's what ended up taking people by surprise. So did law enforcement know that there were people coming to the Capitol with armed with guns to commit violence and attempt to really overthrow the government? I mean, without a doubt, yes. The answer to that is they knew that people were coming to Washington. Uh, what they have said is that they didn't understand specifically that they would be marching to the Capitol. But we now know, you know, clearly from testimony, from documents have been that have been released, that yes, law enforcement officials had very specific, very alarming warnings of violence surrounding the certification vote on January 6th. So Ilya, what did they do about it? Well, it's uh, it, it's interesting what they did and didn't do. Uh, the the one of the best on the record sources that we have about this is a guy named Danelle Harvin, who worked in the local uh, Washington D.C. Uh, uh, emergency services and intelligence area, and he started seeing this stuff come in. And he was relatively new on the job. He'd been doing intel work for about two years, and. Uh, he's getting open source information, right? So about, you know, chat rooms, maybe telegram channels, I don't know what else, but he's hearing what people are saying. And he's getting increasingly alarmed in this sort of late December period, precisely the time when a lot of law enforcement was off for Christmas and New Year's mm, law enforcement right. that had been on high alert all through 2020 because of the pandemic and the racial justice protests and the election. Uh, so one of the things that we learned is that a, a lot of uh, national security professionals were taking well, well-deserved time off around the holidays. But Danelle Harvin noticed this uptick and it was concerning enough that he called his mentor and he's, who's in California. And he's like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And he's like, yeah, I'm seeing exactly what you're seeing. And Harvin, who remember is a local official, steps out of his lane and 
and through sort of a back channel kind of creates a meeting for his equivalents uh, all across the country. And something like 300 people join this call. And what they realize is that the signal is flashing in pretty much every jurisdiction that there are angry citizens who want to go to Washington. They want to do something. Uh, the threat information that's available on open source is not probably specific enough to um, take certain kinds of actions. But mm-hmm. that signal, Danelle Harvin told us, was certainly strong enough to erect eight-foot non-scalable fences around the Capitol and to call for a lot more uh, law enforcement to be on site to protect the Capitol that day. And and one of the mysteries that we don't get an answer to, but I, I hope at some point one of these committees or commissions will, is why that wasn't done. Uh, and Andrew, meanwhile, uh, these people are heading to the Capitol because none other than the president of the United States encouraged them to come. Yeah. I mean, that is the, that is the conundrum. And, you know, both (laughs) Ilya and I uh, have been around long enough to have covered 9-11, to have been in New York City uh, and, you know, sort of blocks away in Ilya's case uh, from the planes flying into the World Trade Center. And we, you know, covered the aftermath. We covered the 9-11 commission. We covered the formation of the Department of Homeland Security. And one of the things that was so mystifying to us is how this apparatus, which was set up to prevent terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, had failed so spectacularly on January 6th. And, you know, that was one of our starting starting points was, was how did this happen? How did this evade the national security apparatus in this way. And I think one of the things that we learned along the way from reporting and and people sort of told us is, you know, there were very dedicated people who worked in the Homeland Security space, uh, who'd been in and out of administrations, uh, who, you know, sort of tracked what happened around January 6th, and who said to us quite explicitly that the systems were not set up to deal with when the threat is coming from the White House, and that kept snagging officials what to do. I mean, they they understood what to do when the threat was coming from abroad, when it was coming from ISIS, when it was coming from Al-Qaeda, how to mobilize, but not how to neutralize when the commander-in-chief was signaling to people that, you know, might be willing to commit violent actions to come to Washington. And that is, uh, was uh, an incredible system breakdown that the system wasn't built for. Yeah. And by the way, like that, <laughs> that's not a problem that we have solved in the meantime. As far as I know, nobody it really has an answer to this and nobody's proposing any kind of changes in the agencies uh, to address this. It's, it's just um, a really thorny problem. And I think it's something that keeps a number of the people that we spoke to for this podcast awake at night is the prospect that Donald Trump could win again and that we could face the exact same problem again, except that Trump is now um, more experienced and understands how government works much, much better. Right. Well, one thing I learned from your podcast is that, as you mentioned, the local law enforcement uh, people were, were hearing about this across the country, but there didn't seem to be one federal, any one federal agency 
that was in charge, right? Or it's so it's so interesting. There, you know, the there's been various uh, congressional reports and reviews and inspector general reports and stuff like that over the past year. Kind of kind of even just aside from the from the January 6th Select Committee. So there's actually quite a bit of documentary evidence already out there. And one of the things that we learned from looking at those documents is that the Department of Defense uh, believed that the Department of Justice was and should be the lead agency here. Mm. Because usually when there's a national security type event, there's going to be a lead agency coordinating, making sure that everybody has everything sort of in place. And normally it would not be the Department of Defense because, uh, you know, principally they like to fight wars abroad, not here. Uh, But DOJ was in its own kind of havoc. They had an acting secretary. In fact, many of the top people at DOJ were acting. And uh, Donald Trump, we have sort of since learned, was putting on a full court press basically to get the Department of Justice to open investigations, to endorse the idea that there had been fraud in the election, even though DOJ looked for fraud, didn't find widespread fraud, and told the president that there was no widespread fraud. The president was still pressuring them to do this. So this is an agency that was really kind of hobbled and in some ways not in probably much of a position to play the expected role of a lead agency. And I don't know whether that happened. It seems to me that it probably didn't happen or didn't happen with the robustness that you would normally expect. Another thing that I think we really, you know, sort of came into sharp relief through our reporting is that the Department of Homeland Security has the power, if you will, to sort of corral all the other law enforcement agencies to uh, coordinate with local law enforcement, to set up meetings, to... uh, talk to the Capitol Police and agencies like that about, do they have an operational plan? And none of that happened. And it left sort of, you know, ad hoc situations like, you know, Danelle Harvin, Danelle Harvin of Washington, D.C., to try to do the organizing and, and fill the vacuum that the federal government had left. Well, I mean, in fact, DHS was created in the aftermath of uh, September 11, right, to fight terrorism. Well, to fight terrorism, but domestic was not a big part of the mix at the Mm -hmm. beginning. And actually, for the podcast, I talked to one of the first domestic terrorism guys, and he describes himself as being sort of the lone ranger uh, at that point. And uh, I think that's illustrative because when you think back about 20 years to what we thought were the threats to our country, um, it was, uh, you know, to put it crudely, like a a bearded guy with an accent on an airplane. And mm-hmm. it doesn't look that way at all anymore. Maybe it never did to the extent that we thought that it did. Uh, what's difficult is combating terrorism that originates in your own country and among your own neighbors. Even calling it that word terrorism feels really momentous uh, when you sort of tr- try it on. So you can see the difficulty that officials would face uh, going after domestic terrorism versus international. I, I want to move on, but I can't move on from DHS without uh, I one of you, maybe Andrea, uh, telling us what was Donald Trump asking DHS to focus on? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so uh, I mean, I think of, we that know. That kind of got in the way, right? right? <laughs> yeah. We I know, know uh, his obsession with the wall. And, you know, one of the things that we learned in our reporting was the 
you know, the sort of way that he proposed these kind of outlandish outlandish measures to keep immigrants out. For example, building a moat along the entire length of the border between the U.S. and Mexico and filling it with uh, snakes and alligators that you know could presumably attack immigrants on their way in. And, I mean, this wasn't just a a fancy, you know, according to our reporting, this was something that officials and DHS had to take time to cost out, to look into, to to figure out, well, you know, how expensive would it be? Turns out expensive to uh, put alligators and snakes in a moat because you have a situation where uh, the alligators eat the snakes uh, and uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not a sustainable you know, situation to say the least. So, you know, a number of top level officials at the Department of Homeland Security told us quite clearly that immigration was not their, their top uh, national security concern, that other things were, and that that was the single-minded focus of Donald Trump. And, you know, I think we, we understand this. I mean, I think it's shocking when you learn the specifics. Uh, but what was clear, and what we learned in our reporting, is when they kept going and they kept saying, domestic terrorism is growing like wildfire. We need to develop a plan to combat it. And they were told specifically, no, we're not going to do that. And there was a widespread understanding inside the Department of Homeland Security that to do so would be to uh, challenge people who supported the president. And that that was off limits. And that was a very big factor weighing on the minds of officials, those who were still left around January 6th. And, you know, I say that is, you know, not snarky remark, those who are still left. Uh, former President Donald Trump had gone through six secretaries or acting secretaries during his four years in office in the Department of Homeland Security. The longest was a year and seven months. The shortest was nine days. And he said quite specifically that he liked having acting officials, that is not confirmed by the U.S. Senate, because it gave him the ability to control them more. If people were, were seeking a job, if their position wasn't secure, it would make them more beholden to them. And he was quite explicit. And indeed, that is how it played out. So when we look at the, and what we know about uh, the collected mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. What what did you discover were the forces driving them? You know, what was behind uh, their zeal to come and attack the Capitol? Was it white supremacism? Was it just distrust of government? Or, Ilya, start us off. You know, we looked closely at three uh, insurrectionists or accused insurrectionists. Two of them have not gone to trial. One one has been convicted. And um, what was really striking in these cases uh, was how the year 2020 occurred for them, right? So lockdown happened. There's a pandemic. There is fear roiling the country. And, uh, and then Donald Trump uh, sort of tries to create the racial justice protests as a law and order issue. We know that the there were there was property destruction in some places, quite a bit in some places, but by and large, in many cities, those protests were peaceful. But nevertheless, uh, the president's rhetoric was really aimed at inflaming rather than 
diffusing uh, that kind of uh, that, that kind of state of mind. And so I spent a lot of time with the family of Guy Reffitt, uh, who was convicted uh, of, of going to the Capitol. He took a gun there. Um, and his son told me he was very clear, like, you know, his dad had, had been into Trump you know, for a long time, but 2020 was the year that he went down the rabbit hole of conspiracies. 2020 was the year that he started stocking up on firearms and ammo and a generator and really started spouting some, some really kind of ridiculous theories. And a lot of that was happening online, uh, work. He didn't have a lot of work, but he was spending a lot of time online and he, this guy Reffitt, this Texas man, eventually got involved with a militia group called the Three Percenters. Now, interestingly, um, his son Jackson, who later mm-hmm. tipped the FBI about his dad's activities, was really, really concerned as he watches this all kind of spool out. Uh, Guy's wife and two daughters see it differently. Um, what what I heard from his wife and one of his daughters is when he joined the Three Percenters, they kind of looked at it almost like a Boy Scouts thing. So they were happy for him that he had something to do, that he'd made some new friends, uh, and they really looked at it as an outlet for somebody who was under stress, rather than as something that was going to radicalize him and put him on the path to going to the Capitol and you know now being locked up potentially for many many years. Um, so it, it was quite interesting to go inside these people's lives and see how it plays out. I'm hesitant to draw a lot of generalities, but I do want to say, and I think it's significant, that the president is in a unique position to mobilize people. Many, many uh, rioters have said in, a, in court filings, in court appearances, in other places, that they thought that the president needed them. And they thought that it was okay because the president asked them to go. So, Andrea, would January 6th have happened without Donald Trump? I mean, I think it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a sort of difficult counterfactual, but I think it is quite clear, you know, as people in his own party said, that it would not have. You know, Liz Cheney said that. Mitch McConnell, the, the leader of the Senate, said that at the time that he voted to acquit Donald Trump. And, you know, I think what shocked everybody in the sort of, you know, sort of caught them flat footed in Republican as well as Democrat was that forever in the history of the United States, you know, it's 200 plus year history, there had been a compact to accept the results of an election. Now, of course, I mean, I, I'm accepting the Civil War, which I realize is a, is a rather large exception. But in every other election, other than during that period, there was an agreement that, yes, we're going to take the results, like a football game, you lose, you go on, you have the next game. And that time it didn't happen. And the, and the driving force behind that was Donald Trump, was he did not accept the results. He filed some 60 lawsuits, uh, almost all of which you know, ended up being dismissed. He, as we now know, developed all these alternate plans. He tried to reinstall leadership at the Justice Department at the last minute. He tried to get Georgia to find just enough votes for him. He tried to get alternate slates of electors certified. And incredibly importantly, he sent out that tweet, which is how we named our podcast, Will Be Wild, on December 19th, where he said, be there on January 6th, Will Be Wild. And, it, you know, as Ilya mentioned, we know that 
people who came heard that and said, I have to go to Washington. And that very directly mobilized people. And they, when they heard that in their own words, they understood that they were, you know, they had to bring weapons, they uh, had to bring body armor, they brought bear spray, they were coming girded for battle. And in the words, their own words, they were doing that because Donald Trump told them to. All of that was before those final words on the day of January 6th, when he had this huge crowd come and hear him speak on the ellipse. And he said, go march to the Capitol, fight like hell. And that is what happened. Yeah. Just a quick footnote. You mentioned the weapons, various weapons that they brought with them. So the violence that we saw at the Capitol, it was not something spontaneous, right? I mean, that was part of the planning. Well, uh, you know, we, we know from one of the biggest cases uh, is a conspiracy case involving the Oath Keepers militia. It's a seditious conspiracy case. And prosecutors have already surfaced uh, a lot of text messages and other kind of communications between uh, the people accused in that conspiracy. And it shows that they were very mindful, actually, of DC's gun laws. And so they went kitted out in helmets and bulletproof vests and all the rest of it, but they as far as we know, at present, did not bring firearms. Um, there's only a small number of people charged with bringing firearms on uh, on federal grounds. One of them is Guy Reffitt, the Texas man I talked about earlier. But uh, you know, I, I think for me, like a, a little footnote from this reporting is that uh, gun control laws can have, and local gun control laws can have an effect. Yeah, I mean, I think. Sorry, I mean, I just think that said, you know, for for. Um... An episode that I worked on called The Tunnel, which was, you know, about the the battle to hold the tunnel, which is actually the tunnel that is the president or president-elect walks out of right before they're sworn into office. Uh, and, you know, one of the most, you know, sort of gruesome and violent attacks occurred on Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone, who was dragged out of the tunnel, beaten mm -hmm. and tased. And I spent a lot of time watching footage that had been released by the Department of Justice, that had been taken by various individuals. And when you look at that tape, it is just absolutely clear that people came girded for battle. I mean, if you go to a nonviolent protest to hear the president speak, you are not wearing a gas mask. You are not right. wearing body armor. You are not carrying bear spray. You know, they had flags, which they were using as weapons, crutches, police shields that they, you know, took from police officers, which was, you know, obviously a last minute thing, but they came ready to fight. And that is, you know, clear from the videotape and evidence. And it's clear from you know, the various guilty pleas that have so far been entered in, in, in these cases surrounding the Capitol. Yeah. And wait, you know, one, and one thing to add, since I mentioned the Oath Keepers, uh, although they didn't, as far as we know, have weapons at the Capitol, they did, according to prosecutors, have these quick reaction forces just outside of the district where the gun laws are different. Uh, and th basically, they had these weapons caches that prosecutors say they were going to go back and retrieve uh, in the event that civil strife broke out. Right. So one of the most chilling, perhaps the most chilling part of the podcast uh, that I found was uh, your assertion uh, that this was just a practice 
run, that we haven't seen the end of this. Uh, I want to get into that and get your reaction to that and your explanation of that uh, here on the Bell Press Pod. Uh, after a quick break, we'll be right back. Now, we know as podcast listeners uh, that you don't listen to just one podcast. So in addition to the Bill Press Pod, I encourage you to check out the podcast Will Be Wild, the one we're talking about today and the co-host who have joined us today. It's a production of Wondery and Pineapple Street Productions. You can find Will Be Wild anywhere you listen to podcasts, but check out especially Amazon Music. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We're back on the Bill Press Pod with a uh, very, very excited to welcome uh, two veteran bro- a journalist, two veteran broadcasters, Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Maritz, who are now co-hosts of a great new podcast called Will Be Wild. So January 6th was uh, not just one of a kind. Uh, it, we might see it again. This could, one of your people that you interviewed called this just a practice run. Andrea, what are we looking for? What can we expect? So I, that is a a quote from Chris Krebs, who was in charge of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Mm -hmm. uh, until he was fired by tweet after the election. And he said, insurrections without, uh, cons- an insurrection without consequences is a practice run. This is a theme that we heard over and over again in our reporting that is sort of earlier on in the Trump administration, there's kind of a fumbling about to try to figure out how to do things. And by the end, they were learning more and more how to wield the levers of power. I think one of the things that was sort of startling to us is when we started the reporting on this and in the immediate aftermath, I think we asked ourselves, like, what was this? Was this a protest that got out of hand? And, you know, or was it an almost coup? And I think, 
you know, as we've watched the evidence come out, uh, much of it, although not all of it, from the select committee that's been investigating this, mm-hmm. it certainly really tilts towards the sort of red end of the meter, that this was really an attempt not to transfer power. And, and we've seen all the ways that it happened. And, you know, just to take one set of discussions that went on, there was at the very end, so we're talking now January 3rd, uh, there was an attempt by Trump to replace his acting attorney general, who had only been in office, you know, a little over a week at that point, <laughs> with someone that he thought would be uh, more favorable, that he, that would go ahead and send out a letter to state legislators in swing states saying the Justice Department is investigating don't certify your electors. The acting attorney general didn't want to do this, but there was somebody a couple levels down named a man named Jeffrey Clark who mm-hmm. was willing to do this. And there was a showdown at the White House on the on January 3rd, uh, a meeting that went on for hours and hours where Trump was clearly considering this. And at the end of the day, he said, I'm not going to do this because I don't think I'm going to get it through the bureaucracy. It's a paraphrase, but that was essentially his conclusion that too many people in the Justice Department would resign, it would fall apart, it would be a distraction, it wouldn't work. But you can see through these multiple attempts that they've you know, figured out things and things that have happened subsequently. I mean, one of the sort of big backstops was local elections officials, Republican and Democrat, who stood up and said, no, 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 the election was fine and we're backing it up. And what has happened in the Republican Party is uh, they've been running people for these local offices who uh, say that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected president. That's happening now across the country. So it doesn't take very much to think, well, what would happen if you had someone in office or someone trying to achieve office who did all of these things and the local backstops were not in place that were in place in 2020? So, Ilya, is that, I, I wonder, as that, is that what we can expect, if you will, as the next January 6th, whatever the date is in 2024, uh, where Donald Trump, the candidate, you have either governors who will refuse to accept the uh, results of the election or a state secretary of state or state uh, election officials who just, just simply say and have the authority to say, we don't care what the people decided. You know, our electors are going for Donald Trump. It's a coup without the having to storm the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very concerning to a lot of people we spoke with, people who have been in government for decades. I talked to Leon Panetta, the former CIA director, uh, also former defense secretary, former congressman, former White House chief of staff. He's done basically every job in Washington. Right, right. And he told me he is very worried about the possibility of a coup. And and one of the sort of scary dimensions that he and I talked about, and I talked about with some others, is where is the US military in a scenario like this, where if you're able to kind of fully manufacture a dispute or spoil the result somewhere so that the the you know the the actual outcome is in doubt, well, you know, at some point the nuclear codes have to be passed to someone at say, and at some point uh, the military yeah. is going to l- recognize some legitimate civil authority or some civil authority. I don't know if it's legitimate or not. So there's a lot of very chilling questions to contemplate if we keep going down this trajectory where future elections are 
routinely disputed and where the loser does not accept the results of the vote or uh, possibly where the result of the vote uh, is just not clear. I mean, you know, one of the things Andrea learned from talking with Chris Krebs and others, she, she spent a lot of time kind of examining how the 2020 vote was done and, you know, under these extraordinary circumstances with the pandemic. And you come away and, and very, very impressed with Chris Krebs and others in CISA and some other agencies who really went all out to make sure that local elections officials had the resources they needed to tally the votes under these really unusual circumstances. Uh, that I, I don't really see that happening again <laughs> in the same way, uh, because now uh, Trump supporters are really interested in the precise mechanics of voting in a way that perhaps they weren't before. Or, or preventing the accurate count from taking place. Uh, in I, fact. Mean, I, I, I do think it's worth saying to be clear that, you know, there is a, a president in office now who, you know, does believe uh, in the election system. And, uh, you know, I do think that that is a sort of different equation. That doesn't mean that, you know, there can't be things that people haven't thought of yet that, that could happen the next time around. Uh, but I, you know, I do think it's, you know, it's, it's worth considering what that could mean and what the permutations of that could mean in 2024. Uh, yeah, of course, the problem is that the people making those decisions may be in the state legislatures, right, where the president has yes, exactly uh, right. little authority. Um, so we, your podcast, eight, eight, eight series, eight chapters, uh, ends uh, just about the time that the January 6th committee will begin its public hearing. So uh, let me just close by asking each of you, uh, what do you anticipate to come out of the work of the January 6th Select Committee. They've interviewed over a 1,000 witnesses, uh, some 125,000 documents that they've reviewed, and now they're going to have eight public hearings beginning next month. Uh, what do you expect out of them? I think they are going to try to show uh, as, as much as possible what the White House, what was going on in and around the White House at that time. Um, I, there was a recently a court decision uh, in California connected with uh, John Eastman, the lawyer uh, lawyer for Donald Trump, who was basically cooking up these um, legal theories with very little basis for how the election could be contested. And uh, one, one, of, one, of the pieces, one of the pieces of information that was surfaced in this court decision or that's referenced in this court decision is a letter from Vice President Pence's counsel, Greg Jacob, to John Eastman during the riot. And he says, pardon my English here, thanks to your bullshit, we are now under siege. So that's a piece of information that, that has already been obtained by the committee. I think the committee is going to probably go as far as they can down in that direction to show that Trump and the people around Trump were warned that this path that they were on was both um, based on lies and was going to get us in a lot of trouble. Andrea, does it uh, result in any um, charges being filed by the Justice Department against Trump and people I around I mean, him? I think it's still a, a big mystery. I mean, I do think, you know, what those of us who've been tracking the select committee closely, you know, have been bowled over time and again by the things that they've already unearthed. And I think this is, you know, in part an opportunity for them to package that, 
bring it to the American public. I mean, they have been promising that we are going to hear from new witnesses. And I think that this is an opportunity to really hear the details of what came out. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things they're really going to be highlighting is they couldn't get people like Mark Meadows to fully cooperate. So they went a couple levels down to the assistants, to people in the room, and they've gotten extraordinary details from them. And I am looking forward to hearing them testify in person, hearing what they have to say to sort of place us in places that we haven't been able to go. For example, in the White House in the days leading up to January 6th and on January 6th itself. And I think we will be learning a, we will be receiving a much more complete picture of what happened. Will that lead to criminal charges? It's hard to know. But I do think that if there is, uh, you know, evidence of criminality or a case that that is put together, it does make it that much harder for the Justice Department to uh, avoid taking legal action. I also just want to say, like, the, the, the a live hearing is an inherently dramatic situation. So for all the fascinating things that the committee and other bodies have turned up in terms of evidence about what happened and what letters and emails were sent to whom when, hearing it in people's own voices, hearing eyewitness accounts in people's own voices carries extraordinary power. We know that because we just made this podcast, which has people talking in their own voices. Uh, And I think when millions of people are watching at home, depending on how this is stage managed, it has the potential to um, be pretty impactful. Well, I just hope that before the members of the committee start their public hearings, uh, each of them takes the time to listen to all eight episodes of Will Be Wild. Uh, You've done an incredible job of bringing this to the American people. Uh, Andrea Bernstein, Ilya Maric, thank you so much for your great work. And thank you for joining us today on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much. Great talk. Pleasure to talk to you. And that's it for today's edition of the Bill Press Pod and our interview with the co-host of the podcast Will Be Wild, Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Maritz. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we'll be back this week with our Reporters Roundtable because it's Memorial Day weekend coming up. We'll be back on Thursday, not Friday. So have a great week. But remember, Thursday, we'll be with our Washington reporters taking a look at all the big news of the week here from our nation's capital. Take care of yourself, have a good week, and then come back on Thursday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.